I'm Amy Gallo. I'm the author of Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. And my leadership lesson is that we all need to get better at handling conflict, not just interpersonally, but then the teams we manage as well. Hello, and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, the editor of Management Today. And I'm Ailish Cronin, staff writer at Management Today. Have you ever found yourself ruminating over a difficult conversation at work? Well, our guest on today's podcast is here to help. Amy Gallo is an expert on conflict. She is Harvard Business Review's contributing editor, co-host of the brilliant Women at Work podcast, and author of two books on conflict. The latest is called Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. In her book, she identifies eight types of difficult people, which will probably be all too familiar to listeners, including the insecure boss, the passive-aggressive peer, the know-it-all, and the tormentor. She offers practical strategies to deal with each type of person, as well as advice on how you cope personally with the fallout, from understanding why these battles can be so troubling and how to let them bother you less. We caught up with her in her London hotel before she gave a speech at the London Business School, and it's well worth a listen. But first, it's time to delve into the leadership world this week. Ailish, what's on your agenda right now? Well, since Shopify's decision to throw caution to the wind and scrap all reoccurring meetings in a bid to try and free up as much time for their employees to focus on getting various tasks done, which they believe will then help reduce burnout, there's been some talk about this idea of adopting a chaos monkey approach to business. Chaos engineering is the technical term. Chaos Monkey is the name of Netflix's own chaos engineering software. And the chaos engineering theory is an idea that the only way to avoid failure is to consistently, constantly fail. But how this works in business is to deliberately introduce failures into a business to test its resilience. And the end goal of this is to root out and fix any weaknesses within a business before they cause major disasters. Business leaders can use it to, first of all, encourage innovation amongst their own employees. What this does is it can give employees the freedom to try out new things, test new things, but it can also be used to test IT systems, supply chains, customer support, and it can introduce disruptions into these systems, which in the long run can help save money because it's helping take preventative measures against system downtime or customer complaints, which can ultimately either derail a company or cause a lot of stress and money involved in that. If we take Netflix's Chaos Monkey software as an example, this works to shut down random servers and see how the system responds. And in real life examples, it can help identify various vulnerabilities in the system and basically allow teams to fix the issues before they become an actual real life. I think that's a really interesting idea. And I can see lots of benefits of that approach. My impression is, though, that this is something that is inflicted upon staff without them knowing, I guess. Mm. Is that right? Yes. I mean, one of the things that would need to be done from a leadership point of view is, especially if you're wanting to encourage employees to try out new things, if those new things then fail, there needs to be some psychological safety there so that employees know that if these things do fail, they're not going to face repercussions because 
this is a system that is set up for you to fail. You're supposed to fail in a way. It's almost failure is almost encouraged mm. with chaos engineering, chaos monkey theory, whichever you prefer. I quite like calling it chaos monkey. Oh yeah, chaos sounds, monkey is much better. <laughs> it sounds, it just sounds cool. But if you employ that, you've got to make it very clear to employees that it's okay if this fails. They're not going to be severely reprimanded. I think it's interesting because that particular story, I remember lots of the debate seemed to be centered around the way it was done. Mm. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but employees at Shopify turned up on the Monday morning to find that any meeting that had more than one other person in it had been removed from their diaries. Mm. Recurring meetings, I think, right? Yes. So any recurring meeting. So that was a company-wide policy. Suddenly everything was removed and they turn up on their desk and something massive has changed that they've had no kind of input into. I think that's quite just an interesting thing that's happened there because I can totally see the attraction for leaders. You know, is it better to make changes in a kind of slow way where people kind of drag their feet, moan mm. about it, et cetera, and it takes you a long time to get to where you want to be? Or do you just pull the plaster off quickly, deal with the chaos and move forward? And I think there is something about putting everybody in the same position all at once. Mm. And I, I think that's what we've seen from hybrid work mm. experiment since COVID pandemic. And I think that people previously had worked from home or you know hybrid jobs had been around, but suddenly everybody at the same time having to do it together really made a big change, I think. And that kind of collective experience has really mm. kind of changed things. That said, surely all the research shows that stress at work is partly caused by feeling like you don't have agency over your job. And I think that is exactly what that is doing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You have, haven't got any agency. Suddenly you've gone in, something massive has changed and you don't have any control over mm -hmm. it. And also this kind of chaos monkey theory about keeping you constantly on your toes and things changing all the time. Mm -hmm. I don't know how well that sits with people feeling sort of psychologically safe at mm. work and having control over their working environment. I think it comes down to the top-down effect. If a leader themselves is doing it, I'm not going to get involved in that. I'm going to stand back and watch as you do this. Leaders then need to get involved in that. I think it's a mixture of both. I think you need to get everyone company-wide in on it and everyone needs to be aware of it and communicate that to everybody, which can sometimes take time. But I think also if you've got a leader who's fronting it and has trained senior management department heads in order to execute this correctly and support employees as well, there needs to be that support there and that psychological safety and limits as well as to what new things they can try. Because there might be new things that they want to try that might derail a company. But if they go, OK, that might be slightly more extreme. Here's what we're going to do instead. And if it comes from the top down, employees will see that this is what the exec team is saying. This is what the leadership team is saying. This is what the CEO is saying. Then employees will feel a little less out at sea, I suppose. And there'll be a little bit more psychological safety there because then they feel that there's, there's enough scope for them to try new things. But there's also parameters in which they can do that. Mm. I also just wonder if there's a law of diminishing returns at play mm. here because I'm sure the first few times that happens everyone's all hands on deck mm. let's fix this problem etc if after a while you realize that that's going to happen continually mm. then you probably don't care quite as much and I'm just thinking classic fire alarm <laughs> in offices you know oh, it's just a test or mm. even when it's not a test oh it might be a test after a while I just wonder if people are going to apply the same kind of energy and enthusiasm into kind of fixing those problems or whether they're just mm. going to get a bit irritated by constantly being kept on their toes mm. day after day. So it'd be interesting to see where that kind of plays out really. Mm. 
One of the interesting research pieces that we published this week was looking at why more people don't become leaders. And I thought this is really fascinating. We've both been <laughs> discussing this a lot, but it found that qualified people are not becoming leaders because they're too worried about what others might think of them. And this is new research from the University of Michigan. Yeah, so this is quite an interesting piece of research. There were several studies conducted to try and uncover some of the reasons why people feel as though they aren't leadership material or don't see themselves as leadership material. One of the main reasons that so many people are fearful of it is because of what people might think of them. But rather than being open, honest about that and openly saying that they are afraid of what other people think of them, they're afraid of looking bad, a lot of people are much more comfortable hiding behind that's just not who I am excuse. That's just not me. That's just not my personality. I don't have the right skill set for that. So they'd rather put themselves down than actually admit that they're just very frightened to do it. Yeah, they won't admit vulnerability. They yes, kind of don't yeah. want to be seen to care too much about their ego mm. and their, their personal reputation. Mm. But the research found that there were three distinct categories that people's fears fell into. And one of them was the fear of being seen as bossy or domineering. There was a lot of negative connotations around the word leader. Some take it to mean someone who is manipulative, brash or overbearing, while for others, the word leader is associated with examples of poor leadership. Another reason that the research found is there is a fear of seeming different, standing out. And I think this goes back to one of the drivers of human behaviour is a sense of belonging, a sense of community. And to be singled out, even if it's positively, you know, you're being seen as a leader and leadership, despite what some people think is generally seen as a positive role to have, it's a positive step forward. That sense of being singled out, there's a lot of discomfort around that. And that's just an evolutionary thing is that we yes. all have that we just want to be part of the crowd. And as soon as you step outside of it, you're much more vulnerable than yes. to, to threat. Yes. And the third one is, again, that fear of being seen as unqualified some people were very open about the fact that they felt that their personality wasn't compatible with what they thought a leader should be, whether they felt they were too introverted, they didn't have enough charisma, or they just lacked self-confidence in general. And I think this is quite a, a British thing. We're very self-deprecating, I think, as a nation. And we're not, when you compare that to nations like the US, where they seem to be a lot more confident and to be a leader and to stand above the parapet is really celebrated I think our culture is very different in that respect. People shy away from the idea of being seen as a leader. So what the researchers suggested needed to happen was that first emphasising that leadership is a skill that can be cultivated. So people aren't born natural leaders. Mm. It's something that you learn and can be taught. And the other is that people should find ways of presenting leadership as less risky than people imagine. Yeah, I yeah. suppose if people hear horror stories of leadership and they listen to other leaders and hear their stories. And if they hear a lot of stories where leaders have had to do very risky things and whether those risks have failed, I think it's it's much easier to talk yourself out of it. When you hear something negative, that's what sticks in your mind more than all of the positive things that could come with being a leader. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it, I suppose you need to rebrand. It's about rebranding what the idea of a leader is. And yeah, so trying to avoid that negativity bias and mm. actually maybe showing different models of leadership so people can see that it's not just that big, striving, usually male-dominated, mm. aggressive White leader that's style, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> taking up all the risks. So, yeah, I think maybe we just need better and more role models mm. displayed. 
those themes fit really nicely with our conversation with Amy. She talks a lot about negativity bias and what we can do perhaps to overcome it as well. Just before we get there, two quick things to tell our listeners before we get to that. First is that MT has opened nominations for its inaugural 50 Most Impactful Leaders list. We're looking to identify the leaders whose work has resulted in demonstrable and positive improvements for their company and society. And we want to sort of celebrate the huge talent that exists among business leaders in the UK. You can nominate people for the list. Just go to our site and you'll find the link and the deadline is the 16th of March. And also congratulations to all those who were shortlisted for our Business Leadership Awards. The winners will be announced on the 27th of April. So good luck. And now onto the interview with Amy Gallo. Amy, thanks so much for being on our podcast today. I'm a massive fan of yours and particularly love your Women at Work podcast. So it's brilliant to have you appearing on our own one. And you've obviously written this new book now called Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. And I think our listeners will be very excited to read this. I'm sure everyone knows somebody at work that they don't get along with particularly. So first of all, can you just give a brief description of the book and why you tackled that topic? Sure. The idea from the book came from my last book. So I wrote a book called The HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict. And I started doing talks and workshops based on the book. And inevitably, what would happen is people would come up to me afterwards and say, you know, those were very helpful frameworks or tools for dealing with conflict. But I have this one coworker. And then they would tell me the story of someone honestly, sounded truly awful typically. And I thought, you know, they're right that the sort of more generic high level advice that was in my first book and also in many books about dealing with difficult people didn't apply to a lot of these unique situations. So working at Harvard Business Review, I knew there was lots of research about dealing with these unique personality types. And so I thought, okay, can I deliver some of the more evidence-backed tailored advice for those questioners at the end of my events who are dealing with certain patterns of behavior, how to deal with a pessimist or a passive-aggressive peer. And so the book is really organized around eight different archetypes, the ones I hear most often in my work and in my research, and share you know some background on what would be a rational reason to behave that way, because oftentimes we all behave that way, and then also tips for how you can try to nudge that person into more productive behavior or have a direct conversation about what they're doing that's troublesome for you. Great. And this really matters, this kind of conflict at work, because as you say right at the very start of the book, it's not usually just you go to work, you have a fight with a coworker, and then you leave and you forget all about it. It kind of takes over, you can wake up in the nighttime, it spreads to your sort of friends and family as well. So I think it's a really important thing to actually try and tackle. When you have negative interactions, because of our natural negativity bias, they do quite take over our psyche. And as you say, they affect our family. We bring those things home. We annoy our friends by talking about our, our troublesome coworkers. And there are also lots of physical ramifications of that stress too. I mean, the really interesting study looking at the healing time of wounds between people who have animosity in a relationship. These were studied in marriages, but people who report having animosity, a simple wound on their hand healed much slower. And so if you think about that, a lot of our resources are being taken up by stress and anxiety that comes with these challenging relationships. 
And if we could free that up, imagine not only could we heal faster, have less stress, but we could probably perform more at work, have better well-being, be more creative, right? Lots of studies show that, that there's such upside to having positive relationship. Mm, absolutely. And then also not even just from a personal perspective, but if you're a leader, you want to engender that positive environment in your business because there has business benefits to it including I I think I read this in your book about people who think they have friends at work are much more likely to stay and much more likely to be engaged and that's obviously the kind of what people are wanting from creating effective businesses. Yeah I mean that's research done by Gallup they've done that for years and it's consistent finding that the more people say they have friends at work, the more engaged, the better able you are to retain them. There's also an interesting study that shows that people who say they have a best friend at work tend to have higher performance ratings. So there's actually measurable impact on performance. So those skeptics who think, come on, you just do your work, you go home. There is measurable benefits to actually having friends at work. Yeah, particularly when so many people's identities are also wrapped up in their job as well. It can have a much more kind of detrimental effect to people than they probably realize. You mention in your book some of the some awful stories of toxic behavior. Can you just give us a couple of examples of them? Oh boy, there's so many, which is one of the things about the book doing as well as it's done since it's come out. It's of course feels great. People enjoy the book. People are finding it useful. But it also makes me realize how many people are suffering in these relationships and these really challenging interactions. I'll give you one example, and this is an extreme case, but someone told me a story of their manager asking them to reschedule their wedding because it didn't align with an important client meeting. You know, I had also talked to a founder of a startup who shared an office with his co-founder, and because he didn't invite him to a meeting with an investor, which they had sort of agreed they were going to divide and conquer, they didn't speak for six months. They went to work every day and worked in silence in the same room. Wow. Yeah, that sounds awful. (laughs) At the very start of your book, you talk about your experience with an email from Brad. Oh, Brad. Not actually his (laughs) real name. I really love the story because I thought our listeners, it's so, it'll be so familiar to so many of our listeners that you get an email. It's not that bad, but it just bothers you. And then you're up there in the middle of the night, you start thinking about it. When you're at home, you start thinking about it. You then start beating yourself up mentally for the fact that you can't let it go and, oh, why are you so sensitive, et cetera. Can you just talk us through what's going on in somebody's mind when that happens? You know, why, why does that happen? Yeah. You know, our brains are meaning-making machines, right? We want to constantly make sense of what's going on around us. They also are very good threat detectors. So when you combine those two things, this email from Brad, which – You know, I think a lot of people probably have been like, oh, Brad, delete and move on. That was not my experience. It really stuck with me. And he leveled a few minor accusations that I didn't care about human relationships, for example. But what happened is immediately I'm starting to tell myself a story. And the story at first was Brad's a jerk. I don't have to respond to this. But I also felt threatened. And the negative impact it had on me got bigger and bigger with that rumination. So then the story became, maybe Brad's right. Maybe I don't care about human relationships. Maybe I should have done what he asked, even though it wasn't really my responsibility. And I got really hooked into this story. There's a response our brains go into called amygdala hijack, where the amygdala, which is responsible for that threat detection, sort of becomes primary over the prefrontal cortex, which is the rational thinking part of your brain. So 
if you had asked me on a good day, should Brad's email bother me? I said, no, but at 2 a.m. in that amygdala hijack, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what did I do wrong? What? Did, oh, why can't Brad just disappear off the face of the earth? You know, you just sort of get into this real rumination. It's hard to make a rational choice about how to respond. Yeah, absolutely. So in your book, you have eight archetypes, if she said. Can you just outline who they are? And um, I'd love to know if there's one that's perhaps more common or people tend to talk to you about more often? Sure. So I'll list the eight. Um, I think most of them are pretty self-explanatory, but I'll give a little bit of color to them. So insecure boss, obviously, this is someone who doesn't feel confident in their position and takes it out on you, perhaps by micromanaging, hoarding information, preventing you from interacting with other departments or people. Then you have the pessimist. I think that's very clear. The naysayer. Then you have the victim, which is sort of a flavor of the pessimist, where the pessimist thinks everything is going to go wrong. The victim thinks everything's going to go wrong to them. Passive-aggressive peer, that probably needs no explanation. There is the know-it-all, the biased colleague, the tormentor. And the tormentor is someone who you expect to be a mentor. They've maybe come up before you in the organization. Maybe you share a similar background or an identity factor, but they seem to do the opposite. And then you have the political operator. I will say the one I get asked the most about is the passive-aggressive peer. And I mean, who among us has not acted passive-aggressively at times? I'm sure I've done it even today. I actually did this today. Sorry, just to interrupt. <laughs> yeah, but please. I was just, I was on the tube coming here. Um, no, I was on a train, actually. And there was a guy sitting there, and he had a massive big electronic bike thing, electric bike. And it was taking up four seats. And it was standing room on the, you know, everyone was standing up on the train. And I just thought, God, the arrogance of this guy who's got this massive bike. And I thought, well, if that were me, I would be kind of a bit, you know, worried about sort of apologizing. Maybe I would stand up and let people sit down. He didn't seem to have any compunction about the fact that he was taking up this this um, four spaces. And then he had the audacity to get his phone out and start watching a video. Oh my God! Without headphones. Oh God! And I just thought. Oh, this guy just, and I was thinking, you know, in my head, I'm thinking things I could say to him, but instead I got your book out (laughs) with a front cover about, you know, difficult people and just sort of put it in his eyeline as I was reading it. (laughs) I love it. Which I appreciate. It's completely childish and obviously really (laughs) passive aggressive. And it was making me laugh as I was looking at the book thinking this is exactly what you're saying not to do, but it made me feel better anyway. That's well, and what's funny about that, I mean, that is perfect because of course, who among us, right, has not had those moments. I mean, I act passive aggressively toward my husband. I act passive aggressively toward friends, my mother for sure, right? it, it, It happens and I think it's very human. And that's one of the things I really try to communicate in the book is that none of us is above this behavior. Mm-hmm. And yes, your coworker might be particularly difficult, but part of trying to work with them is trying to understand that these are universal feelings, right? These feelings of insecurity or that we can't be direct with someone. And so understanding there's probably a rational reason for their behavior, even if it's not something you agree with. And one of the things I think about is how was he raised that he thinks this is okay to do, right? And then I start judging his parents and not him. That feels a little bit better, right? And you just trying to get yourself unhooked from the real ire you might feel toward them can really help you access sort of a more productive behavior. And But I do love, I love that my book was used as a passive aggressive tool. It does make me so happy. Thank you. If nothing else, that has uh, been useful. <laughs> that's right. That's right. 
you mentioned in the book some of the sort of successful ways that people respond depends on who they are as a person as well. So that could be ethnicity or gender and stuff that, that lots of intersectionality comes into play in their responses. Can you just kind of talk us through that? Yeah, and this is something I really wanted to do with the book because it, most of the books I have read about difficult relationships or difficult people don't talk about this issue of bias and how it plays a role. And I think there's two ways in particular that are helpful to think about. Number one, our definition of even what's difficult is often laden with bias. If you think about the affinity bias, we are more likely to give people the benefit of the doubt if they look like us, act like us, sound like us, have similar backgrounds, right? We give that, we sort of say, oh, I get what you're doing. But when there's difference, we start to label any behavior that doesn't feel exactly right to us as difficult or as wrong or inappropriate or insensitive. And there's a tool I share in the book called Flip It to Test It, which is when you have a colleague who you think, oh, total pessimist or know-it-all or political operator, ask yourself if that person had a different identity, was different gender, different race, different ethnicity from a different cultural background, would you feel the same way? And I think that can be a real helpful test to just sort of check your own bias. The second way that bias plays a role is that you know, in the book, I talk about tactics, everything from being sort of more indirect, sort of trying to nudge someone into into productive behavior, and more direct, just sort of calling it out. And I try to pay attention to who's allowed to choose those types of options. We know from research that people who are from non-dominant groups, um, maybe an ethnic minority, or in the U.S., certainly people of color, have a narrower range of acceptable behavior in the workplace. So those more direct approaches might work for a white man where they would not necessarily work for a black woman who might be labeled overly aggressive or emotional. And that's not to say that we shouldn't choose those tactics. It's just that we have to be aware that there are repercussions for using certain tactics. And we want to make our choices carefully, keeping in mind those stereotypes and bias. Mm, I think that's a really good point. And yeah, it's that classic, isn't it? So a woman says something and it's, oh, she's being emotional, she's being this, that, the other. And yeah, I think it's really good to check that and actually think about how you put that into action. Um, Do hierarchies matter here as well? Absolutely. I mean, I think when I think about that indirect versus direct, I don't know many people who feel comfortable having the direct conversation with their boss of, you've been behaving passive aggressively, could you please stop, right? And I think that's understandable. Of course, our bosses have a lot of control over our lives, our salary, whether we get promoted where we work, you know, what type of work we get to do. And so understandably, we will be more hesitant to, you know, give them feedback or confront certain behaviors. I think all the tools are relevant when the hierarchy or power dynamic is different. I think the key is to ask yourself, what are the risks of using this tactic? What are the risks of being more direct with your boss? For certain bosses, those risks will be very high. You might be retaliated against. You might incur some reputational damage. For others, you might be able to contract ahead of time of, if I see something that's a little off or if we have a disagreement, how do you want me to handle that? And some bosses will be open to that. It's really dependent on your relationship with your boss, the organizational culture, but it's certainly a dynamic you have to consider when, when trying to address some of this. And do you think that some people are more impacted by conflict than others? Um, You know, what can you do about it if you're more kind of averse to it? Yeah, I think certainly there are people who really, really hate conflict. And those tend to be people who really value relationships and harmony. And they see conflict as a direct threat to those things. 
Let's be honest, there is no such thing as a conflict-free team. You are going to have conflict. It's just a normal, inevitable part of interacting with other humans. So the more you can get comfortable with at least negotiating, you know, some of the smaller conflicts I think is really important. One of the things I think that can help is remembering that we're hardwired for likability as humans. We want people to like us. But really, more often than not, what we want is to be respected, to be trusted, not necessarily liked, especially at work. And people respect people who can handle conflict, who can be direct, who can be honest, uh, who can facilitate a difficult conversation. Most people, I've actually worked with leadership teams where the CEO is the most conflict-averse person in the room. And that person loses a lot of respect from his team in the organization. I used his because I was thinking of a particular person. Um, but you know, they lose the respect because they're not able to get people through a difficult conversation or a difficult decision to productive action. Well, that was actually my next question was, do you think you can be a good leader if you're sort of conflict averse? You know, I think there are a lot of leaders who've done very well who are quite conflict averse. That said, I do think it is a critical skill. And in fact, Linda Hill, a professor at Harvard Business School, you know, talks about navigating office politics. And by office politics, she means normal tensions, discussions, facilitating decisions is a critical leadership skill. And especially in complex organizations, the organizations, the matrixed organizations that, that many of us operate in, you're, you have to figure out how to navigate those tensions and help others do it, or you're really truly going to hold the organization back. Mm. I think it's interesting because we talked about this recently with Jacinda Ardern leaving her position, and obviously she was seen as sort of the poster child of empathetic leadership. So we asked whether empathetic leaders are more likely to burn out because if you're taking on a lot of that emotional labor in your work environment then that's an additional you know level of work and you're all having to do with your team so did you think that that is a risk absolutely i mean i think one of the things that often comes to mind when i'm talking about conflict or difficult people empathetic leadership is just how critical the balance between getting your needs met and making sure other people's needs are met is such a core part of leadership. And I think partly we burn out because it's not the norm. And so you're you're doing that sort of against the grain while others aren't. And if we could just normalize the need to be concerned for others, I think it would feel less of a burden. That said, it's hard to do. And we need to give support to people who do that, both in terms of tools and how do you do that, but also the encouragement to continue to take care of yourself and to lean to one side of the balance, right? You might be leaning a lot toward the empathetic servant leadership part of the, the equation, but then, of course, you need to come back or make sure your needs are met. And I think that's what Jacinda Arden did so beautifully. And the fact that she's been criticized for that is just so upsetting to me. Mm. And because you have a big chapter in your book about self-care, actually, and making sure that you're looking after yourself first. Well, and it's the last chapter of the book, but I hope it's clear throughout the book that so much of the work you need to do to navigate these challenging relationships is hard. It's stressful. It causes anxiety. It causes strife. And you have to take care of yourself 
first and foremost. And the fact that it's the last chapter, I hope, doesn't mean it's an afterthought. It's really meant to be integrated throughout. Some of the tactics I'll share too. One is just setting clear boundaries. And, and those are both mental boundaries. Let's say I'd open the book with a story of a difficult boss, right, who I thought about pretty much 24 hours a day when I worked for her. <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, I think about what I could have done is told myself, okay, I get 15 minutes of wallowing time where I get to think about her and how stressful it is to work for her and how awful she is. And then when that's done, I need to move on. But also setting boundaries in terms of I'm not going to talk to her after 5 p.m. because when I do, it impacts the way I interact with my family in the evening. Or, you know, let's say this person in finance is really challenging for you. You can decide, I need this specific information from them once a week. I will have a five-minute interaction and that's it. And just sort of really keep the boundaries around it. The other tactic is sort of having things you tell yourself that remind you. One of my favorites is Sometimes people are going to be mad at you and that's okay, right? And just because someone's upset or gets defensive or is being rude or uncivil to you doesn't mean that something's wrong. It's, I mean, ideally they wouldn't behave that way, but it doesn't mean anything's wrong with you. And so, yeah, they're going to be mad at you. On you go. And I think easier said than done, I know. I actually read an interesting survey recently that said 80% of people said they currently work with a terrible coworker, which is pretty high um, and upsetting. But 93% of those same respondents said most of their relationships were positive. And so if that's the case, why aren't we thinking about those relationships? Why aren't we spending time with those people? And, and I think that's one of my sort of core pieces of advice is Make sure that you are allowing that person to take up the appropriate size of your time and effort. I think that's a really good piece of advice. And it's difficult because you do just focus on the negativity bias, isn't it? That thing that people tell you how well you're doing at work and the one area you can improve on. And that's the only thing you can think about years later. Yeah, that's exactly right. I can can recite a negative line from a performance review verbatim from 2002. I mean, that is how strong the negativity bias is. I still remember they told me I did not have business acumen, which it, it still haunts me. I'm like... Come on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm interested as well if you think there will be shifts in different generations. Because I I saw something, another interview you did actually, and you said that the reaction to the books had changed. So when you first wrote your first book about conflict, there was a lot of kind of focus on trying to understand the other person that was difficult. And then with this book, there's been a bit more of a, well, why should I have to try and put effort into understanding them? Do you think that's because we're more of an individualistic society now? And I'm mentioning this because of the quiet quitting. And it seems like the, and these are kind of stereotypicals or generalizations, of course, but that the younger generation are perhaps better at setting their boundaries and not accepting different types of behavior or that kind of, and that power dynamic shifting between the employee and the employer, particularly over the pandemic. I haven't seen a lot of research on this, but I will tell you anecdotally, I put a call out about the book at the very beginning of the pandemic. And I used the phrase difficult people. And I got all this pushback of people like, you can't call people difficult. That's not fair. And then when I was getting ready to launch the book, I did a similar call out. It was a different purpose. But people were like, oh, why even give advice? You should just cut them out. You should be done with them and report them to HR. And I thought, oh, my gosh, where what's happened <laughs> to society? And I do think there's just less tolerance, I think, in general of bad behavior, which is a good thing in many ways. The way it concerns me 
is that I feel like we dismiss people out of hand before actually giving them a chance. So I sort of – that pendulum swing makes me a little uncomfortable in that I feel like I think being empathetic helps you as it's sort of a strategic move to get you in a better frame of mind to actually navigate the situation. It's understandable given what we've been through in the last three years. I think people suffered a lot of grief. They've suffered a lot of loss. Very often we haven't watched out for one another. So I understand that reaction. So I do think we've moved that way, but I hope it's a pendulum. I do hope we're going to come back to a little bit more collective concern. Yeah, it feels like it's much more kind of black and white thinking. There's not much nuance. And it's almost this cancel culture that you're either good or you're not. And you're very much not. And there's no kind of in between. And it feels like that perhaps that kind of polarization is sort of creeping in. What impact do you think remote work has had? on conflict. And I'm, you know, I remember speaking to somebody the other day who said that their former boss just got worse because they were under more pressure and then they were able to kind of be really horrible to them without any witnesses. Whereas at the flip side, that it's much more equal because everybody's got their same square on their Zoom call, etc. So where, how do you think that's impacted? Yeah, you know, I'm waiting for the, the research on this because I, I think lots of people studied remote work pre-pandemic, but it's different. It's different when you are forced to work from home and you're under an immense amount of stress. And so I just think we feel a lot less human when we're a tiny box on a screen, even if our box is the same <laughs> size of a square inch as our boss. But, And I think the, the cognitive load that so many people are carrying means that amygdala hijack I was talking about earlier comes into play much more and that we're being much more reactive, much more ego defensive, right? Really trying to protect ourselves. And that sometimes results in bad behavior. At the same time, I do think there can be a lot less drama because there's not the side conversations, although we all know those side chats happen in Zoom too, but there's a lot less of the, I have to be in relationship with you on a daily basis. I can just sort of shut off my screen and, or shut the call off and then we're done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's it's both. I think we've been seeing the upside and the downside. Mm-hmm. Do you think that conflict is always bad? And I'm asking this question particularly because I remember an ad agency once talking to me about the fact that they almost welcomed conflict. They almost said that was a good thing that they did. You know, they challenged each other on things and that made the work better. Do you think that it can make the work better or do you think that actually that works perhaps for some personalities but not for others? I'm a big believer that we actually have not enough conflict in most workplaces. And But by that, I mean healthy conflict. I mean debate. I mean dissent, disagreement, not personal jabs, not the drama that, that we think of. And I think partly, so, at least in the U.S., I can say this confidently, and many of my U.K. colleagues have echoed this, is that we are so conflict-averse that not only we're missing out on ideas, opinions, innovations, but we're also missing out on the chance to connect, right? I mean, who among us hasn't had that really tough interaction with someone where we have sort of had to hash it out? And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I actually like you more now, right? Like, I feel more comfortable with you because we've set the precedent that we can have these bumps in the road and it will be fine. And so I think there's a lot we miss out when we just steer away from conflict over and over So if you are a leader listening to this, um, what advice do you have for them for creating a psychologically safe environment where people feel that they can talk to each other in a kind of perhaps challenging way, but without that veering off into a kind of more toxic environment? Yeah. I think one is 
make sure you normalize conflict, right? Make sure you, if you have not said to your team ever before, we are not always going to see eye to eye and that's okay, say that now. Like say it tomorrow and then say it again next week, right? Just sort of make it clear that it's okay to have difference of opinion and that we expect people to surface that and keep ideas really focused or disagreements focused on the ideas, not the personalities. One of the the tools I like to use with senior leaders is to think about the normal tensions that would come up on your specific team. So maybe there's a tension between speed versus quality or between efficient decision-making and inclusive decision-making and talk about them and talk about them as good tensions, right? Because what happens is the person who cares about speed and the person who cares about quality, we start assigning those values to that person. And then when there's a conflict that comes up about how quickly do we do something or how high quality do we make it, it becomes about Kate's idea versus Amy's idea, not this tension. So try to name those tensions. And when they come up, when there's a disagreement, say, ah, I think we have this tension going on. This is a good tension. Let's hash it out and let's figure out where in that spectrum we want to land. Fantastic. What do you think most people get wrong about conflict and what can they change to be better at it? Yeah, I mean, I think when you think about conflict, lots of people sort of visualize two people on opposite sides of the table trying to hash it out. And even if you envision that civilly, I think it's the wrong way to imagine it. And I I really like to think of people on the same side of the table with a third entity, which is the problem that they're trying to solve. And I, that visual to me makes much more sense. It's a more collaborative way to get through conflict. But if you see that instead of as a sort of tug of war between two people where one person has to lose in order for the other to win, I don't think you have a lot of room to build a, a constructive, productive resolution. I love that visual. Sit on the same side of the table. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Amy. And um, yeah, for, for the listeners, get a copy of the book. I recommend it. Thank you, Kate. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a lovely conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're available on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.